from the future here and I'd just like to apologize for the mic quality it's not the best but we're hoping to have that fixed by next week thanks and I hope you enjoy today's episode good morning how are we guys good morning um, Osmo here I'm in Brisbane I'm, I'm great what? Good. what about you vampire um, yeah I'm not too bad uh, nice Sunday morning. So I'm Vampire, uh, South Australia Greens member. Nice, nice. Right. Just waiting for Adit to pop in. I've invited him to speak. Good morning, Adit. How are we? Oh. Good morning. There we go. How are we? Yeah, travelling traveling all right. Just on the very tail end of the coof, but uh, soon to have got that knocked on the head, so I'm pleased about that and uh, raring to go. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, Momo and Vampire, if you guys wanted to give any more like introduction to yourself, now, now would be a good time. Um, yeah, I guess we'll start with you, Momo. Uh, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a left-wing voter. I'm a, I vote for Greens. Um, I'm a software engineer, a single parent. I've got a nine-year-old boy. And yeah, that's what, what more should I say? Oh, that's plenty. Like, it's just basically the introductions are just kind of to break the ice a bit. What about you, Vampire? Um, yeah, so I'm doing a, I'm a PhD student. Uh, in a STEM computer science PhD, um, also a left wing. Uh, I'm a Greens volunteer, but not like a high up. I'm not like part of the proper organization, just show up to hand out how to votes. Very good, very good. I'm sorry, Adit, uh, you're surrounded this week. I oh, know from all from all sides. <laughs> <laughs> always good to have it. Always good to have some different opinions and guests in here, though. So, uh, even though we've had uh, similarly politically aligned people before, Apricot, you seem to have been able to pick people who can express in a diversity of opinions. So, I expect that to continue today. I believe. <laughs> so, on that note, we might move on to our first topic, which is. It's been just about two months since Albanese was first elected. Um, we've seen him, you know, basically, I think we're starting to see him be a statesman and he's also starting to grapple with some of the tough responsibilities of actually governing. Is the honeymoon period over for the government at this point? Like, has the election fund worn off? What do we think, Momo? Uh, I think the answer is a bit mixed. Um, some people were never going to give Labor a chance. Um, and for them, the honeymoon ended on election night. That group includes <laughs> some of the media outlets who have a you know a bias against Labor. Also, the rusted-on and hardcore LNP supporters. Then there's Labor's own rusted-on supporters who, um, for them, Labor can do no wrong. Um, for them, the honeymoon will never end. 
Um, but it's a bit different for the casual and swing voters. I'm talking about the, the 5 million people who first preferenced the minor party. And even a big chunk of the voters who did vote for a major party, um, I think for them, uh, the honeymoon is still ongoing. Um, we had a we had a deep desire and hope um, for change, and we'll give Labor a chance to legislate before that hope fades. So yeah, right, still ongoing. Well, yeah, for the majority Vampire? of people, yeah. for the majority. No. Yeah. What about you, Vampire? I think it basically is over, and that's mainly because Labor's done the things that they can do just by themselves and now they have to deal mm. with those minor parties which got such a high vote at the last election um and when you have negotiations you have controversy and the honeymoon disappears pretty quick i will give them credit that they use their honeymoon period pretty well i think to basically sign off on those captain's call ministerial decisions people have been calling for for a while so Stuff like the Bernard Kaliri case or the Billoella family, mm -hmm. that's really what you expect a honeymoon period to be used for. Mm, that's a good argument. What about you, RD? How are you feeling regarding the Albanese government? Are you still in a honeymoon phase? Well, I, <clears throat> I, th I think it's over and I think it should be. Uh, from, from what I saw, Labor barely scraped over the lines and the libs were soundly kicked out. Uh, there's, there has been an, an out-of-control inflation of incompetence this past 20 years, and I think the voters have made it clear that they're fed up with the major party shenanigans and they want to actually see some value for their dollar. Now, no one got a mandate this election. That's, that's just simply polywaffle. All they got was a chance to show that the whole federal system may not yet need to be completely torn down and abandoned. And for me, so far on several fronts, it's meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So I think, yes, it's over, and yes, it deserves to be. Uh, they had the honeymoon period, and unfortunately, uh, Australia, <laughs> Australia wasn't sufficiently impregnated. It's up to them to prove they can do the job. Right. Okay. Um, what about you? How about you, Apricot? So I'd say that it's... Maybe not necessarily over, but I think um, they're, they're starting to run low on gas, if you will. Um, you know, the petrol lights come on, they're like, oh, crap, gas is $2.25 a litre. Oh, no. Um, and now they're starting to kind of worry as we move into our first sitting week. Um, I think Vampire had a really good point in terms of how they've used the signing moon period and that they've used it fairly well. Um I would be inclined to agree with that. I will say, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I really think this latest um, pandemic kind of response has really shunted the honeymoon period. I think a lot of voters kind of, you know, who sort of maybe hadn't been paying attention since the election, kind of like the music stopped for them. So... Yeah. Yeah. Look, I can I can see that, and I I did agree with Vampire. They were some. There, there was some good use. So look, it's not. Uh, despite how I, I I speak, it's not completely negative. I can I can acknowledge those. As you said, we'll get on to the pandemic, but uh, I'd be curious to uh, to hear what Momo and uh, Osmomo and Vampire uh, think about the areas in which uh, Labor uh, essentially 
just continuing business as, as usual. There was, I noticed that one thing that stood out to me particularly, and I, I suppose it's because something that I mentally associate with, uh, I suppose, a responsibility of, a, of the Labor government. On the Saturday paper there, July 16, there was the story, Albertanese offers no relief for job seekers. And they're just saying there, the new employment services regime created by the coalition and endorsed with minor tweaks by the current Labor government began this month with the promise that hundreds of thousands of job seekers would have more flexibility in the way they engaged with the obligations imposed on them in order to receive social security payments. Instead, despite some minor improvements, many of the worst features of the old job active system remained. Billions of dollars worth of new contracts to support this scheme were linked, uh, were inked by the coalition just months before the uh, the government. And under the new terms being kept by Labor, the notorious work for the Dole program will remain. So will other mandatory activities. That to me is a crucial area of what I see as traditionally responsibility for Labor. And I'd, I'd be curious what the three of you think about areas like that that don't appear to be changing. Thing. May I, we'll start with you. Yeah, that does seem very unlabor. It certainly is different to the labor that I used to know in my youth. Um, mm. And I think it could be, well, there's contracts that have been signed, so that, that might be a problem, making big changes there. But I, I think labor's been scarred by years in opposition and also scarred by the loss of 2019. Um, and I think their reaction to those to those scars is to be uh, a lot a lot harsher um it seems like they've lost some compassion um Ugh. yeah interesting way to put it i don't think the old labor would have i think they would have fixed this area up but this labor is being very liberal light um i think they're trying to Ooh. not be much different from the lnp what about you vampire well, I think uh, it's almost kind of this is both the writing's been on the wall for a while and also a bit of a weird week with Albanese kind of backflipping on comments he would make in opposition about stuff like pandemic relief. Um, so I've seen a lot of people quoting tweets from the Albanese of the past saying how the government needs to provide rat tests to people and sick leave paid support and stuff. So it's a bit mm. of a weird in that sense. But at the same time, mm. we've seen with stuff like the stage three tax cuts that Labor's kind of had this mindset of if the coalition put it in, we're just going to keep it there um, and just not rock the boat, I guess. I guess they don't, maybe they want to take the moral high ground and not tear down things their predecessor put together like the coalition did to mm. the carbon tax. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe. That is a very interesting thing to ponder. Um, but on your point of the carbon tax, I think we might move into our second topic. Mm. Uh, this week, I don't know about you guys, but I found a little bit of nostalgia. You know, we're talking about pandemic management, and of course, the climate wars began to rage again. <laughs> um, so in the, within the next fortnight, I believe, Parliament will be sitting and Albanese does plan to take his 43 legislated target, sorry, our target to be legislated to the parliament. He will, however, need the support of the Greens to pass it alongside either Jackie Lambie or David Pocock. 
Um, there's been a lot of bluster from both sides about this, um, you know, with Albanese claiming I have a mandate because I cobbled together 77 seats in the House. Um, Bant claiming he has a mandate because the Greens have their best showing, things like that. Um, the thing is, though, who do we think is going to lose this, like, battle of the climate wars at this point? Like, uh, will the Greens fold? Will Labor come to the table and negotiate? What's going to happen, do we think? Maybe I'm going to pick on you. I'm okay. sorry. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to start by saying um, that the phrase we have a mandate is one of my most hated phrases in politics. Um, uh, yep. I, 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 I definitely agree. Yeah, I think it's utterly meaningless unless a party controls both houses of parliament and Labor does not control the Senate, so they do not have a mandate. Um, this And this is the stance Labor themselves take when they're in opposition. So... I also don't think it's quite right to call this um, the Climate Wars 2.0. The old Climate Wars had Labor and Greens pulling one way and the LNP pulling the other way. Um, Labor and Greens wrote legislation and the LNP repealed it. Uh, today's friction is between two parties pulling in the same direction. Uh, regardless of what happens, uh, we'll be going forwards, not backwards. Um, as for my prediction... If I was a betting man, I would say Labor's going to win this little battle. Um, they'll legislate for 43% and the Greens and POCOP will vote yes in the Senate. Um, and I think the Greens will vote yes because there's just going to be too much public pressure, um, mm. especially as it's a it's a floor, not a ceiling. So, yeah, that's my thoughts. I, speaking of phrases that we hate... <laughs> there's a few... <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, it's a floor, not a ceiling. I very much dislike that phrase. Yeah, uh, I, I know, it's but a I, floor, I, I, not a ceiling, but we won't yeah. waste it an inch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I did say I had it too. But I did say that's how the public will see it. The public see it as a starting point, um, and I think the public mm. wants something to happen. So yeah, that's why the I think the Greens will cave on this one. Okay, interesting vampire. Yeah, I. I'm going to take a more pessimistic view and say we're going to see a failure to legislate because I think as fun as it is to talk about the climate wars and, you know, we can go through 2009 and if that was good or bad policy oh, and 2011 man. and yeah. so forth. But at the same time, it's almost less about the climate, I think, and more about how is this government going to work and how is it going to legislate things? And Labor's trying to kind of set precedents, I think, that they can just use public pressure to bully the crossbench into supporting their legislation as is. They're trying to kind of generate mm. this idea of the coalition's out, so let us do things, but we're not going to work together. You're going to do what we want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's actually pretty accurate, Vampire. Um Particularly when I consider, because as far as the Greens, um, the Greens haven't only thrown down the gauntlet regarding climate change policy, they've also signified that, you know, when it comes to the budget later down the year, they're going to try to amend the actual budget to remove the stage three tax cuts and, you know, support for um, fossil fuels. So it's not like this is the only kind of time the two parties are really going to butt heads this year. So I think the idea that they are trying to establish that, you know, this is how Parliament's going to work, guys, get in line. Um, 
yeah, I think that's very accurate. What about you, Adi? Well, I, I would echo Osmomo's one. I had that as a point as well, that, that neither side has a mandate. He uh, expressed my opinions very well on that one. I think the Greens are going to lose the battle. I think they're going to lose the battle because the majors have the most to gain from the donations and behind the curtain support of what essentially is essentially a two-party system here in Australia. I know there's all the things about what it is and that. However, uh, it's essentially a two-party system and it is a two-party system because if you're part of the, the power brokers behind the scenes, two parties is easier to control and two parties are easier to make uh, the fleas in the box, the public jump just by tapping them using established patterns. So I think just on machination side, Greens are going to, to lose. Also, too, and uh, you know, uh, when both sides are pointing fingers at each other and accusing the other side of all sorts of moral outrages, I tend not to trust either of them. So whilst I might have some preferences for some uh, you know, emissions re reduction, I'm not trusting Labor on this and I'm not trusting Greens on this. We'll see how it comes out in the, the, the mix, uh, but I'm standing back and watching. And my little uh, left field prediction is that it could be that neither Labor, it could be that Labor and Greens both lose and Dutton ends up becoming the winner by adopting the Joe Biden hiding in the closet strategy. Just as a little left field potential prediction. Hmm. All right. Well, that, that is very interesting, actually. The thing is, when thinking about this, I can't help but wonder if Albanese and the government haven't really explained their positions that well. Mm. And I, I outlined each side's kind of talking points in a comment, uh, I think, yesterday. But Albanese's main kind of pitch for this is it's a floor, not a ceiling. The Greens voted against the CPRS, and we're going to put the legislation to Parliament. So, and like we're not going to, you know, amend it essentially. Um, that doesn't seem like a really compelling argument, I don't think, to voters. Um, on the, you know, it's a flaw, not a ceiling. Part of the justification for that was, you know, businesses need certainty. You know, that's why we need to go. You know, we need to have that legislated target so businesses know what's going to happen in the future. Yep. Except. On, so the same on one side, but then they're going to their progressive voters and progressive groups and climate action groups going, oh, but don't worry, guys, we can certainly definitely blow past it. You know, like, it's absolutely not binding or anything. We don't need to worry about it. Mm. Like, that doesn't really sound like certainty for business, does it? You know, like, how can it be both? How can you provide certainty to business and also say that, oh, well, the target's kind of symbolic, so it doesn't mean anything? Oh, that's a, that's a very, very good point. I, in fact, that's, there's been two points recognised there today that certainly for for business, and uh, I can't remember whether it was you, Osmomo, or Vampire that said it, and you you essentially echoed it there, Apricot. Uh, to me, the, the important side is actually f framing it in a way that the public can understand it. At the moment, it's all sort of a little bit esoteric. There's no real uh, easily digestible message and unless you can have the public have a sound bite and a short message that they can 
reiterate and regurgitate and, and convince themselves that they have understood it. And that applies to me. I'm not I'm not being aloof here. To, I'm part of the public and voting <laughs> as, as well. But unless we have an easily digestible message, uh, I think so far Albanese is failing. I would also say I think the Greens are failing as as well it's it it seems to be mm-hmm. this this big political de- debate and i don't feel like there's anything uh readily regurgitated by the public i don't know whether i'm missing something there but uh i think that and what you said about the certainty for business are two big two big uh roadblocks at the moment yeah i would definitely uh- yeah, uh, I was just going to say, I'll definitely echo that, RD. And I'd say almost what we've been seeing feels less like a election debate on policy and more like a parliamentary squabble that has come into the media view. So mm. I feel like they're almost mm. not explaining their positions because it's not for us to even care about. <laughs> the fight yeah, doesn't involve yeah. the voter. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, that, that might change um, once Parliament sits and they debate the legislation. Uh, we, we haven't had that yet. Yeah, well, and that's I a guess fair point. one other thing I'd want to add on to this is Albanese kind of invoked 2009 to kind of pressure the Greens, but between now and then, it was a different time, both because it was, you know, 13 years ago, but more importantly, they didn't, even though Kevin Rudd had the lower house, he didn't have the Senate, so he wasn't able to do the strong climate action that the Greens would have wanted. While as today in 2022, with Pocock and the Greens and Labour being able to ignore Dutton and his uh, coalition, it's not really the same situation as it was in 2009. Mm. I, I also think it's kind of worth highlighting that as time goes on, the whole CPRS 2009 argument uh, kind of just stopped working. I, 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 I sort of liken it to um, Darth Vader in Star Wars, and bear, bear with me. <laughs> so when when you first watch the original trilogy, Darth Vader is this like, imposing presence. He's this fantastic character. He's more popular than the actual main villain of the story, the Emperor. But as the franchise goes on, the more we see of him, the less imposing he is. It's, you know, it's the more we see him lose fights, basically, the less kind of intimidating he becomes. And he's getting almost to the point of parody. Hmm. Um, and I feel like every time there's a similar kind of situation happening with the 2009 CPRS argument, where every time that gets willed out, it kind of loses some of its bite. And eventually, it's gonna, there's going to be a point where, you know, maybe Albanese at one point will come out and talk about the CPRS and the resounding response from the public will be, who the hell cares? Mm. Like, like, just to put things in, sorry, just to put things in perspective, I was 12 when the CPRS was voted down. Hmm. Like, you know, like most of the, most of the core green voters, you know, 18 to 35 kind of thing, probably don't remember the CPRS. Yeah, see, that's the problem though, because if Labor keeps repeating their catchphrase, yeah. it was the Greens' fault, people forget the facts of what happened in 2009 and all they can remember is it's the Greens' fault. And I, that's why Labor keeps repeating it. 
I was going to say exactly that. I don't think it loses its bite. I think every time they say it, it embeds itself in the public consciousness and it's going to become one of those things like liberals are the better money managers where it doesn't matter if Labour gets us through the GFC or the liberals watch with the money or whatever. Liberals are the better money managers. It's just part of the public perception. Yeah, another example of that is um, name a politician who lied in the last 20 years. A lot of people would say Julia Julia Gillard, but but I think that's completely unfair. Um, She, you know, her, her, her promise about not having a carbon tax, it changed when she had to form minority government, but the Liberals managed to convince people that she was a liar. And compared to their own election lies, it's quite a remarkable feat, really. Yeah, and I mean, they a, went a remarkable. Yeah. I was just going to say, wasn't it uh, Howard who had his core and non-core election promises? Oh, yeah, yeah, if it's not written down, it's not a real promise. <laughs> but yeah, it's just uh, repeating the lies, and and they're not so much lies, but the, the you know they just repeat it until that's all we, we can remember. On Julia Gillard, though, staying on our topic of the current fight, I think Albanese is kind of setting himself up for failure or backing himself into a corner in that every time a journalist asks him, you know, are you going to cut deals with the Greens? And this was both during the election and after it. He's always had a resounding Labour's going to do our policy. And if the Greens won't support it, then we'll do it without them, basically. And inevitably, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have a Senate majority. So he's going to have to cut deals with the Greens in the next three years. And when that happens, the media is going to have all these sound bites of I won't do deals with the Greens. And we'll just have a repeat of the Julia Gillard. Uh, That is a very good point. There's a worse scenario. Uh, And the worst scenario is they do deals with the LNP. Uh, Well, I, I think that's more likely, to be honest. So you do or don't? No, I'm, I'm saying if, uh, if they can't deal with the Greens, then they have to turn to someone, and the only person they can turn to is the LNP. Yes, and did you say, Apricot, you thought that was or wasn't more likely? Oh, I think that's more likely. Yeah, um, right. and I wouldn't be surprised if it's... I, I think it'll definitely happen uh, when the Greens try to amend the budget about the stationary tax cuts and the fossil fuel uh, support. Um, and I think it'll be a very potent image having Labor and Liberals in the Senate crossbench, you know, basically keeping up support for fossil fuels or stationary tax cuts. But it can also happen on things where the parties are much more aligned, like in terms of an integrity commission. Mm. Um, there's already been a couple of flags that, you know, Labor will not support the green amendments that they want into the integrity commission bill. Um, meaning, you know, if that maybe won't pass, they're going to need the coalition. Um, it's not a great position, I think, for Albanese to really be in, but I also think it's worth highlighting that I, I think you're right, Vampire, that he has made a mistake in constantly ruling out working with the Greens, but he didn't just rule out working with the Greens. He ruled out working with the crossbench in its entirely. Like, he closed his door to Jackie Lambie, to David Bothoff, like... And that they are kind of trying to walk that back a bit, you know, with Chris Brown going, oh, well, we're, I'm more than happy to listen to kind of any reasonable suggestion, but, like, our legislation is our legislation and it's not changing. So, oh, dear. I don't... It's going to be a very interesting three years. It already feels like it's been about two years since he got elected. Um, and 
parliament hasn't even sat yet. Well, yeah, that really yeah. upsets me. No parliament yet. It just takes too long. Look, far too long. Hey, just mm-hmm. just while we're on this topic, we've uh, just co- got a comment from two of the, the people tuned in on the Reddit talk. Uh, ben Along, who uh, is a regular commenter in here, says the Greens need to understand that the 43% is a floor figure from which to start. It is not the ceiling that they wish to achieve. I feel that if the Greens can put forward an actual plan to achieve higher than 43%, then Labor will certainly work to achieve that. Uh, ben Along also commented, name a politician who, uh, who who will lie. Where do we, where do we start? Yeah. We also had a, a comment from uh, Nietzsche's syphilis uh, saying the Greens will pass the 43% target Labor wants to legislate. Peak conservation groups have urged the Greens to pass the target, which is an interesting one we haven't t- touched on yet, the uh, the pressure on the Greens behind the the, the scene, but rather than continue to editorialise, peak conservation groups have urged the Greens to pass the target and then work hard to make it better. Certainty for business was mentioned, but what was the last nine years of federal coalition government for climate certainty? And it's the Greens' fault, in, in quotes, like the 2019 bushfires di- dialogue amongst the public. For fuck's sake, that was frustrating to debunk. So we did get the magic uh, floor <laughs> floor figure there. However, there was it was interesting to hear that uh, the the opinion that Labor, uh, that if Greens can put forward a point, uh, Ben along believed that Labor worked to achieve that. And I thought Nietzsche syphilis saying about the conservation groups behind the scene. And seeing as seeing as I've got a very green surround, what's your three guys' opinion on the pressure <laughs> on the Greens behind the scene? I I don't think it's as bad um, as people think. And I think part of that is because 43% is actually, you know, we don't bring it up much, but it's quite a low figure. Like the Business Council of Australia is 46 to 50%. So when Labor's mm. target is behind even what business economy focus groups are calling for, you know, uh, there's not a lot of people actively calling for a 43% target outside of Labor. Um, and I guess just also while I'm talking on the how would we get a higher target, the Greens have put forward some very simple things, such as not doing Beetaloo Basin that will increase our emissions by 13% or whatever the talking point is. Um, but basically not doing more coal and gas projects by definition will help us hit better targets. Mm. What about you, Mama? Um, yeah, can I discuss why I don't like the phrase, it's a floor, not a ceiling? The reason, Please yeah, do. The reason I don't like that is... <laughs> I think when you discuss, um, you know, the, the worth of a bit of legislation, there's a range of outcomes. At one end, we have a fantastic outcome. Say we have a floor of 43%, then business and government all work together and we get to 100%. That's great. Everyone's happy pets on the back. But the other end of the spectrum is we only make 43% reduction. Um, And the problem is the science tells us that a 43% reduction locks in bad destruction for the the world. Um, So I think we should view it as, whilst it is a starting point, when discussing the, the legislation, we should talk about the worst case that can happen. And um, 43% is a bad outcome. 
So that's why I don't like that phrase. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I agree with that. And just, I guess, to be a little bit more specific on that, 43% by 2030 is, I feel like it's almost kind of taking on Morrison's argument, um, where it's like, oh, you know, we'll meet 28% whatever. Because Australia will reach 43% most likely just by the action of the states and territories. Like, 43% requires, oddly, like, fairly minimal federal intervention in that. Um, it kind of is basically, don't screw it up. Sorry. Um, the other, oh, sorry. Sorry? I just wanted to add on to that, that Labor's actually said the quiet part out loud and that their 43% target came from looking at what are we doing and where, ha, what are we doing and what number will that give us versus the Greens, what number do we need and how do we get there? Yeah. Mm. And I, I think it's mainly just about so that, you know, in 2025 or whenever the next election is, Albanese can stand up on stage and go, I passed Australia's first climate policy in a decade oh. and we're halfway there. Yeah. Um, you know, like 75%, for example, is a bigger number than 43%, if I'm remembering my primary school years correctly, huh. um, and is therefore harder to reach. So I think the government wants a pretty easy three terms, sorry, three years, ten, I'm sure they want three terms, but for the moment they want an easy three years, they're going to rely on the states to do most of the heavy lifting regarding reaching that target. Um and I'm losing my train of thought. So I'm going to pass to you, Adi. Yeah, look, this to me is at the, the core of this whole debate and really is also at the core of my, my well, I call it scepticism. Some people call it call it cynicism. Uh, you made the, I think it was you, you said vampire or, or Momo. Sorry, I can't remember a moment ago. One of you said that the figures are essentially where we're going to get if we just keep doing what we're already doing. It's the classic government jumping out in front of a parade and claiming credit for it. What was really bugging me when we were talking about this before and when I've been reading about this before is we have this constant narrative that the only way the world can be saved is if we allow government to step in and, you know, work, work their magic. And we've just finished talking about decisions that didn't happen in 2009, which related back to decisions that didn't happen in 2000, which related back to decisions 1990, 1980. We've had 70 years of how important and morally imperative it is to do something about climate and how we really should do something real soon now. And we just keep going on the same treadmill. Money keeps going out of the economy towards the, the people on the peripheries. We don't seem to be really moving further, moving and moving forward at all. So my concern, my my whole issue with this is if we're leaving it to the government in many ways, I'm happy just to throw up my hand and say, well, so that we may as well say we've given up. Mm. It's very difficult because Climate change action is something that requires like global action. And it requires the moving of levers that really only government kind of has access to. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
I myself can't really go up to Santos and be like, hey, Santos, fuck you. Can you stop, like, fracking and whatnot? Right. Like, they're not going to really listen to me. So. So how's that been working out? Very... How's that been working out the last 70 years? In Australia, not very great. Oh, in um, Australia, in the, whole, not... in the whole world. <laughs> oh, you know, there's, there's been a few, there's been a few little, uh, victories you know we've got we've we've got sensible actions like the french making sure that they ha- keep their nuclear um power going uh we've got other wins across the the world but for the most part really what what would you rate the world government what would you give them on their report card for the last 70 years personally i'd be giving them a d minus well i think if yeah, we want to go global I think what we're really seeing is that democracy, as much as we like to celebrate it, the system that the majority of countries of the world use, it's not designed to look more than four years into the future. And so something like climate change, which, you know, it's not really going to ruin us in the next 10 years. It'll be our children and who are, you know, dying. Our democracy just isn't designed to tackle that kind of problem. Mm. I would say that it's a bit hard. It's a bit harsh to give the world a, a D minus or whatever that rating was, because it's hard for us to know where we would be today if it wasn't for government intervention and pressure. Um, mm, fair point. Fair point. point. We could be a lot worse. So, um, unfortunately, I do, I do that's all. Always... When... Yeah, sorry. No, go keep going. No, I was going to say, but we do know we're not. We haven't done enough, and we have to do more. Um, so that, yeah, that's I was all going I to say that, un, un, unfortunately, uh, that always seems to be the get out of jail free card for for government. Well, without government, we really wouldn't. We really, really wouldn't know where we would have been without them. And unfortunately, in the times where we do know, uh, it's too often. My God, we were much worse off. So, your your point's a fair point. I I accept that it's if it is a reasonable point. Uh, history still tells me to be a bit um a little bit a little bit skeptical we also we've also got a comment here from jeffo 12345 uh who is saying in the uh, in the chat talking about uh, talking only about emissions also reduces us to, zil- to sorry also reduces us to about zilch with solar energy and storage we have the opportunity to give everyone free unlimited energy you can't marketize the wind and sun it also ignores the immense deforestation and ecological basis base of which we humans survive off. I'd like to make a point. We don't live away from nature. Nature isn't somewhere you go. Nature is always there, even in the city. If we're always in nature and our nature is one of the most urbanised peoples in the world, is a smoggy, smog-ridden surveillance state, seeing nature as apart from us will lead us further into that dystopia. Essentially, the monopolists of fossil fuel past are trying to ensure the technologies don't get into the hands of the many, keeping us in consumerist stasis. It's mm. a very good comment. Um, yeah, just, that's a really good comment. I would say that electricity will never be free. Even if we were a, a million percent renewable, it won't be free. We, we have to pay for maintenance and... Even if that was free, they'd still charge us. It's just another, <laughs> it's just, no, it's just, it's just another form of tax. Uh, 
I mean, we can derail into my favorite topic of how anything society relies on should be a public service, not a private one. <laughs> I agree, but we won't derail. Um, what we might do instead uh, is go to move on to our second topic. Uh, sorry, our third. Wow. Third, yeah. Uh, before yeah. we do that, if you, yeah, before we do that, if you'll indulge me, I do want to quickly read out our uh, comment by Ben along and quickly respond to that. Um, which is there's not a lot of people uh, calling for 75% either. I think Labor and the Greens need to work on a workable figure, but Greens seem unwilling to negotiate. Perhaps 55 to 60%. Then along, come off it. What part of it of the Greens not wanting to negotiate was it? Was it when Vance said, you know, my door's always open, Albanese, let's sit at the table? Or was it when Albanese said, I won't ever work with the Greens or the Crossbench? Yeah, I've really hated Bye. the Labour people living in an alternate universe where Labour wants to negotiate, but the Greens are refusing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if any of you subjected yourselves to insiders this morning. I briefly did. I was going to watch um, it today. <laughs> but it was fairly good. Adam Bant, for the record, everyone was on there. Um, and he did really kind of stick to his talking points where he's like, we want to work with the government. But, like, we need the starting point. You know, we need to, A, have that dialogue, and, B, you can't, like, it's really difficult to negotiate on a 43% target when they're not even taking into account projects like Beetaloo and Scarborough. Like, hmm. So he kind of really did hammer home how, I guess, tied the Greens' hands are in a sense. But, yeah, no, I think it's kind of very silly to say that the Greens aren't willing to negotiate at this point. Yeah, I don't think any Greens member expects us to legislate seventy-five percent. That's we're not that no, we're no. not that much of a drama. hopeful. We're not that hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're seeing it as, as more of an sorry. You're seeing it as more of an ambit claim, are you? Mm. Yes, I think if we were looking if we we're looking at a hypothetical where both parties kind of got a good outcome that they were all happy with, because if we strip away the political machinations and whatnot behind it. I think we'd have something where we have like a 50 to 55% target and like, uh, you know, basically removing some coal and gas projects. That way both parties can go, hey, we did something. Um, I don't think we're going to get that. Hmm. And on that hey, wonderful you... optimistic note. Yes, I did. Yeah, before we go to your your, your third third topic, just to, to round this out, just a, a little comment back there from Ben, ben Along, emphasising to us that he is not a Labor people. We we know he's a he's a he's a Democrat through and through. Uh, the other comment from uh, Aussie Mozzie was Australia is one of the most spread out countries in the world. So transporting one unit of goods is naturally going to be more emissions intensive than in other countries. We should talk about India, China, and USA. So that's a that's also a reasonable comment on the uh, another another factor on the the climate. But just wanted to get those in before you moved us on to the third topic, Apricot. Fantastic. A small part of me really wants to respond to that, but I do need to move on. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Um, so our third topic is another slightly nostalgic thing, which is pandemic-era policies. Uh, this week, the Albanese government signaled the end to a number of pandemic-era policies, but it seems to have forgotten that we are still in that pandemic era. 
has the government miscalculated here as the criticism begins to ramp up? It's worth pointing out that that topic was uh, created before Albanese's stunning backflip. Um, but yeah, what do we think, guys? How do we think pandemic management's going at the moment? Has the government miscalculated? Yeah. Okay, well, I think that as a matter of principle, um, if you want government pandemic support, then you must also accept government public health measures like mask mandates and lockdowns. I think they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I I know that's their state issues, so it's a bit more complex, um, but the funding, the pandemic funding, most of that is a 50-50 split between federal and state government. Um, And to me, it seems contradictory to drop all restrictions and to let the pandemic rip um, whilst keeping the same level of financial support. Um, Yeah, so, but the problem is, um, thanks to the LNP's mismanagement of the economy, we have a big fiscal black hole. Um, Our national debt is about 840 billion. Uh, The stage three tax cuts are legislated and coming in this term. They're gonna cost 200 billion over the next decade. Um, so I understand Labor wanting to tighten the belt. Um, I just think they've gone about it the wrong way. Um, it's also noteworthy is Labor's indecision. Uh, they announced cuts and then a day later they reversed those cuts because of the negative blowback. Um, they're either making mistakes initially um, or governing based on how the mob reacts. Uh, I think it, it doesn't fill me with confidence. Mm, yeah. Um, it's also worth highlighting out that on Monday there was supposed to be a national cabinet meeting, um, but because like this, the outrage kind of became so intense that that was quickly shoved up to yesterday. Was it? Was it Friday or Saturday? I think it was yesterday. I feel like it was Saturday. Yeah, yeah Saturday. Um, which is where we got <clears throat> where we got Albanese talking about how no, actually we will do you know pandemic leave until um, September. Uh, what do you think, Vampire? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just a, in society, we're kind of having a different mental attitude towards COVID. So we've gone mm. from, you know, a year and a half to two years ago where there'd be a case and we'd all be checking checking his, uh, the exposure sites in our phones. I don't know when the last time you guys looked at an exposure site was. Um, mm. But, yeah. you know, now we've got our government coming and telling us millions will catch COVID in the coming months. So I think we're kind of just in the let it whip stage. And part of why they're trying to wind back that welfare is they're not really making any efforts to hold COVID back anymore. Uh, You know, if you haven't gotten your three vaccine dosages or four now for elderly and whatnot, uh, that's on you, I guess. (laughs) And that's the mindset we're now going with. Yeah, I, th- I think they're mis- I think they're miscalculating, and I think part of the part of the problem is they expended a lot of political capital. Labor and Liberal uh, was, uh, expended a lot of col- uh, political capital in making people afraid, making people absolutely. And let me say straight up there, I accept the pandemic i understand how serious it was i understand that we've lost uh, i think it was over ten thousand uh p- people but aside from that there was a lot of political effort put into making an entire population scared 
and willing to follow every direction. And now to turn around and suddenly try and turn around that huge ship, uh, I think is a miscalculation. I don't think we're I don't think we're seeing the the end of this. I think there's going to be some I think there's going to be some some floundering. And to your point, uh, vampire, when you were talking about uh, people's perception of it and how you know you'd be looking for the latest headline or the latest infection site. Now it's sort of you hear someone's got COVID and it's sort of oh yeah well <laughs> plenty of plenty of people plenty of people have the thing that's a key here and this is going to surprise you a little bit apricot I'm a little bit skeptical oh. I'm a little bit skeptical about something here <laughs> I I'm, oh, <laughs> surprising there's an expression uh, from Sherlock Holmes uh, the dog that isn't barking there was a an article in the the Guardian 13th of July entitled millions of Australians will be infected with COVID in coming weeks, health minister says. And this, I pulled this out because this to me was typical of how we're seeing this issue reported. They're saying, this is a snippet from there, after two years of low COVID rates due to highly restrictive border policies and lockdowns, Australia is experiencing a surge of cases and rising death rate with more than 10,200 deaths since the start of the pandemic. What I see there is it's lumping all the figures into one and completely ignoring actual percentages and actual context for current figures. We're not seeing what is the actual death rate of these much milder variants now. We're not so seeing it broken down. I, do, I did want to jump in with a stat uh, on exactly yep. that, um, on like why this let it rip attitude you know, it's for the economy, I assume, but we're just paying a death tax, literally, uh, because mm. the fun stat that not enough people are talking about is of those 10,000 deaths, half of them were in the last six months. Um, oh. And that's just because lockdowns work and vaccines reduce. <laughs> like, Lockdowns are more effective than vaccines, but they damage the economy more. So we've made that trade-off, and the deaths are coming as a result. Hmm. All right. Okay, that's an interesting phrasing, thing. framing it as a, a as a death tax. It's a, I like that rhetoric. <laughs> I also think we got we got um, lucky, so to speak, with um, the Omicron variant because it was just not as bad as um, Delta. Uh, but if it had gone the other way, if it was worse, um, you know, then then, then the fear, what you call the fear mongering, the the mentality of lockdown, uh, then it would have, was appropriate. But I think we got lucky. Um, but it could it could mm. still get worse, you know. But did that luck breed complacency? Uh, I, yeah, possibly. I think people just had COVID fatigue. They were sick of lockdown, sick of wearing masks sick of hearing about it mm. and then omicron it wasn't too bad so they thought oh it's just like a cold i would rather just get a cold than have to deal with all of the all of the other stuff all the yeah. lockdowns all the everything yeah. it is interesting that um, you know we haven't just abandoned lockdowns you know the government's refusing to put in mask mandates for public spaces and public transport and whatnot so we've just kind of flip-flops from full lockdown and fear kind of, we, we were i think rd mentioned like on a state of fear 
in the past to make sure people followed COVID rules. And we've just backflipped mm. entirely on that to the opposite extreme of do whatever you mm. want. Mm. I do want to maybe kind of focus a little bit on Victoria as a microcosm. Mm. Um, we do technically have a mask mandate on public transport, by the way. Nobody follows it. <laughs> Um, like I, I catch the bus, uh, to and from work every day. And I think I may have seen five people kind of consistently wear a mask at this point. Um, but, oh no, my train of thought come back. So <laughs> focusing on Victoria, we do have the Victorian election coming up. And I think like the lockdown sentiment and COVID is playing really heavily into that. Um, it was really kind of bizarre to see about a month ago now uh, when Victorian Greens were calling for like some mask mandates and things like that to be reintroduced um, to have Andrews come out and say that masks don't work. Like, no, guys, don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't worry. Um, she'll be right. And now Victoria is at, you know, like, like I think Victoria does have the highest death rate and infection rate of all the states and territories. Um, it's getting kind of quite bad. Like, um, COVID this year is the biggest killer of Victorians, um, you know, over beating traffic accidents, I think, which I think is the first time traffic accidents hasn't been the top killer of Victorians for like a decade. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's also, yeah. say, it's interesting you bring up traffic accidents because that's another example of where we just kind of accept this many people will die per year uh, for all the conveniences having vehicles as part of our life gives us. Mm. But isn't that, isn't, that just, isn't that just isn't that just isn't that you know it it it's, it would be nice to have this ideal where no one uh, this ideal where no one died. Unfortunately, it comes down to a, a job of allocating resources. You know, if we would reduce, we would reduce the ro we would reduce the road toll if we had a twenty kilometre per hour maximum speed limit. But then you've got to say, what's the cost of doing that? And again, it doesn't. Uh, it's it doesn't. That's not to diminish the horrible impact of, of death on a whole lot of people. However, the reality is we've only got so many resources. And in the same way as you can't spend a million dollars on every patient in the health system, there is a certain amount of death because we're alive that we need to accept. Yeah, sure, but there's, yeah. almost, no, there's almost no cost to a, a mask mandate. Masks cost 50 cents each. You know, yeah, that's kind of what I guess if we're comparing yeah, to vehicles, we have like a seatbelt <laughs> mandate, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, another thing that I did also want to highlight as well, which is probably the most kind of shocking thing for me in the last week, was Albanese talking about you know when he was originally talking about getting rid of paid uh, pandemic leave. And he was like, no, don't worry about it. it like, workers don't need, you know, that, that, that leave. They've got good employers. Mm. Um, it just sounded so bizarre kind of thing coming from, like, a labor leader. Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, I could hear Bob Hawke, like, rolling in his grave or something over that. Like, ugh. Well, he also said casual work all... from home. Um, yes. But I, I, just, no. I just think it was a, just a mistake and we shouldn't, we shouldn't judge him on that. 
I, I, as like someone in South Australia, I'm not fully on the Greensland, Queensland hype train, but I have appreciated all the stuff about how we actually have a retail casual worker in parliament. Because I think there is a long history of politicians just not understanding what life is like for a casual worker who doesn't have sick days. You know, when I got my COVID vaccine, it knocked me out for like three days, my first one. And I had to call in to work and be like, I can't come in. And so that was, you know, $500 I didn't get or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, dear. Well, yes, someone, I think it was that Pete. Yeah, I was, just, I was just about to say, you'd made that uh, that comment about the casual workers as, as well. And one of the, uh, yeah, d- despite my opinions on the, the, the system, one of the things that stood out to me was... Uh, this decision to uh, to discontinue the rats for I can't remember the name of the the, the scheme, um, but basically where if you're you're on a pension low income, you get uh, the mm-hmm. the discount or or free uh, rapid antigen tests. That to me was an extremely short sighted move. It's it's a tool that gives people a lot of personal responsibility and allows them to be able to test themselves from home and make a decision without having to pay a bus fare, pay a tram fare, or even go out and try and find a way to to get there. I thought, seeing as we're talking about miscalculations, I thought that was an extremely bad miscalculation. And uh, I know it has been pointed out to me that some of the states are bringing that back in. However, the image and we're talking a lot about image today, the image of the Albanese government removing that independence and tool and forcing people on low income to pay for what is now viewed as a basic COVID tool, I think is a gross miscalculation. Oh, I agree with that. And kind of, this is anecdotal, but I do have a friend that, you know, has suffered directly because of that uh, decision. Um, they've got a few health issues, and so that puts them at risk, at considerable risk, if they get COVID. So they don't want to get COVID very much at all. Mm. Um, and the thing is, though, they also don't own a car, um, so they're reliant on public transport for everywhere. And where we live, because I live in the same suburb as them, there is actually no walk-in like uh, PCR test place. Mm. It's all drive-through. Uh, the closest walkthrough is like a suburb or two away, you know, about a 30-minute kind of bus ride. Huh. Um, and it's just not practical for them to go get and to go get a PCR test if they kind of needed it. They were lucky. We had a bit of a scare where they needed to go and get a test done and they didn't have any rapid uh, antigen test. I was lucky because where I work... Um, where I work because we do education and things like that. Uh, employees get rap tests because so we, you know, we're told, hey, do these very often. And my boss was very nice and let me take an extra one to give to them. Huh. Um, but yeah, it's just like you know, it's not even talking about how difficult it is to go get a PCR test. There are just some people who can't go get a PCR test. Yep. Yep. So, it, it, exactly. And those few dollars matter to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Labor's was wrong. It was bad politics. They, they they should have made it part of Medicare. That that's what the Labor of old would have done. Well, it's just 
I mm-hmm. touched on it at the very start, but it was just weird to see Albanese backflip on his kind of attitude towards rat tests and mm. sick payments that he had when he was in opposition. Um, and I think yeah, it is, it is quite weird. Back, you know, he wasn't necessarily breaking an election promise, but back, that backflip and attitude has probably done a lot of the honeymoon destruction, to be honest. Mm. Oh, that's a beautiful that's a beautiful oh. tie right back to the right back to the beginning to, to, ra- it to wrap it up for us, vampire. Well done. So to just come full circle, we've spoken a lot about climate policy and pandemic era politics. Is the honeymoon over for the government? We've had a bit of our, you know, refresh of what's going on. Has it, has any of our minds changed? Nope. My mind never changes. Nope. <laughs> what about you, vampire? Yeah, I still think it's uh, over, and that's partly the backflip and attitude, um, but also the, now that le- they're going to sit soon, they have to negotiate, and with negotiation, the honeymoon disappears. Mhm. Are Look, I thought there was some. I thought there was some. Um, I thought there was some good points about the uh, getting things, the Albanese and getting things done early on. That yeah, I, I see that. I see that a little bit differently. I can't say overall that my mind has been changed significantly on those issues. However, I did hear uh, a couple of good points that made me made me see those topics in a different way, which is. Which is valuable to me. Good. What um, about you? I How about you, Apricot? I still, I still think the honeymoon's basically over at this point, and it definitely will not survive contact with Parliament. Mm. Mm. So, there we go. On that incredibly positive note, uh, we might wrap it up for today. Uh, thank you, Memo. Thank you, Vampire, for joining us. It's been fantastic to have you guys on. Yep. Um, remember, everyone, if you do want to listen to this later down the line or you missed the start, this will be going up on your favourite podcasting app, hopefully by the end of the day. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much, Apricot. Yeah, good Thanks, Momo. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, Bye. Bye.